Thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. My name is Stephen Elliott. I'm the pastor of high school ministries. Our senior pastor, John, is, uh, as most of you know, he had neck surgery about a month ago, and he's still recovering from that, but he's recovering very well, and i um, grateful that he'll be back uh, at Christmas Eve, and uh, we'll be preaching next Sunday as well. Looking forward to that. Well, we've been looking at this question and answering it, what child is this? It's a beautiful song, obviously the one, uh, a classic Christmas uh, song that we've just sung, and, and um, it's, a, it's a question we're going to continue to ask and one that we're going to look to scriptures to answer. If you have your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. This is a passage many of you, I'm hoping, and are probably reading around this time. Imagine many of you have probably read this with your, with your families, um, usually on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. It's a great and a very, very good Christmas tradition. Um, keep your Bibles open to this passage. Uh, maybe bookmark it, put your notes in there, and then flip ahead uh, to the end of the Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I think before we look at and really to, to answer this question, what child is this? Before we look at God the Son who became man, I think we need to first see God the Son in his full glory. This is, this is a great line, and the one, one that we just sang, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. I know we, those, are, those, are, those are beautiful words, and sometimes they're, they're so familiar to us that we that we stop to actually think about him. But veiled, if you think of like a veil or a covering, um, maybe a mask isn't quite the right word, but a, you know, just something that kind of keeps to where you can't quite see the full picture of someone. Um, but veiled in flesh, so this, this idea of this, this covering of flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate. And that word incarnate is, is, is God become man, God with flesh on. Um, hail the incarnate deity. So let's first, before we get a, answer the question, who is this? Who is this? This 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 child? This veiled Godhead. Let's first look at who is the unveiled Godhead. Let's get a let's get a glimpse of who God the Son is unveiled in His full glory, and we get that picture in Revelation one, uh, Revelation one ten, and then twelve through eighteen. So this is John writing, and he says this. Um, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And this is, um, this is he hears who, or he's given this message. And it says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame, were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So that is the unveiled God, the son, the one who, whose face shines like the sun, who at the, at the mere sight of him, people drop to their faces drop to the ground as though dead. And I love how he describes himself. I'm the one who was alive, who is dead and is alive, and I am alive forevermore. I am the first and last. Those are beautiful words. So with that picture in mind, because we often get so familiar with this, with this child in a manger, which is good to keep in mind, but we forget the vast distance that God the Son went for us and who he is in his full glory. So with that in mind, Turn to Luke 2. We're going to read 2, 1 through 20. And then we'll I'll read this, this section, and then we'll walk back through kind of verse by verse uh, some, most, of, most of this chapter. So again, keep your Bibles open to this and keep your, keep your fingers on the text. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, uh, when they saw it, they made known the saying that, uh, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Beautiful, beautiful words. Your, your main point this morning, if, we're, if you're taking notes, I know this is already in your, in your notes and written down, but the, the, the takeaway, the thing to do out of this text, what this, what this text compels us to do is glory to God is to simply glorify God because the king of all has come. 
Sometimes in, in messages we want to we want to give and we want to walk away with with action steps. Like, okay, what's the what are like the three things that I should do following this text? Like, what does this text tell me to do? Like, what are the action steps? Church, the action steps is to praise God. If you walk away from this message glorifying and praising God for what He has done. Then this, then this sermon has accomplished its purpose. And this text has accomplished what it was intended to do, and that is to glorify God because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. Glory to God. He is the promise keeper. He has done what he said he would do. He has come just as he promised. We're going to walk through this text. If you, these, some of these things I'm going to talk about aren't necessarily in your fill, and so if you want to take notes on the backside, feel free to. But, um, so again, keep, keep your Bibles open. Verses, verses 1 through 5, if you look at, verses 1 through 5 seems to give just a lot of like, I don't want to say pointless details, but strange details. Like, like he's giving, Luke is giving a lot of background about like Quirinius and Caesar Augustine, and this seems strange for, for this text. But this is actually a fulfillment of Micah 2, uh, 4, and 5, uh, Micah 5, verses, uh, verses 2, 4, and 5. And, John, and Jared talked about this last week, but, but I'll read it again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come from forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Friends, this, this text, it wasn't just some, by chance, some random coincidence that, that Mary and Joseph happened to be in Bethlehem at the time. And while it might look like, from the outside in, while it might look like Caesar Augustus governs, while it might look like they happen to be there because Caesar Augustus, you know, issued this decree that everyone should go to their hometown, and that's why Joseph and Mary had to return to Bethlehem. The fact of the matter is that centuries before, an eternity before, in fact, Caesar, I guess, has ever issued any decrees, the sovereign God of the universe had his plan and his providence in mind and set it forth and made it happen just as he planned it to be. Just as he providentially planned it and executed it, it happened. And all the governments and all their plans and, you know, Thoughts and everything that they orchestrated fell right into the hand of sovereign God who stood behind. And I, I imagine, can you imagine how many, how, many, how many Jews were going back to their hometown grumbling at the stinking government, right? Words I'm sure you've never said in your life, words that have never come out of your Going, what is going on? Do you, do you know how difficult they are making this for me? With no, no, having no, you know, not knowing that the God of the universe was working providentially, sovereignly, perfectly behind the scenes to bring about his plan of redemption for all of time and history. So this Christmas season, as you're sitting around the Christmas table and the conversation inevitably, sadly, turns to the government and problems and COVID and, and all of these things that frustrate us, let me encourage you to pump the brakes a little bit and to say, you know what? Is it possible that just as God is, was sovereign then, God is maybe possibly sovereign now and his providence is still working 
and he is still orchestrating his plan to bring redemption to this world, and maybe I am somehow a part of that. So pause before you get too upset and before you get too frustrated. Know that all the plans of the government, God is in control of all of those things. God rules and reigns supreme, and all the governments are nothing. God, God laughs at all the plans of the governments because they always fall right into his hands. Verse 7, let's move on. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In, in the inn, excuse me. I think it's interesting. We, we have this picture in our mind of the, the nativity scene, right? We've grown up with this. We see it in Christmas cards and on lawns, and it's always, there's, there's some sort of a, um, uh, you know, some, there's, there's a manger, uh, there's some sort of a stable, there's animals. When, when we hear the Christmas story, our mind immediately goes to that. We're very familiar with that, and it's, that's, that's good. But if you're actually reading this text for the first time, you have no idea. Like, when we start reading this text, instantly our mind probably goes straight to the stable and the manger, and we, we know where Jesus is going to end up. But if you're reading this text for the first time, this is the first indication of where Jesus was born, like, like the actual location. He was born in some sort of animal shelter. And we have this like, like oh, it's, it's wood and it's enclosed and there's fresh hay and it's lots of light and there's cute little lambs over there. And that is probably not the case. It was probably very, very crude. It was probably very, very, very simple. I mean, maybe some sort of shelter covering. It was, it was very crude. And so as you're reading this text, all of a sudden you get to verse seven and you go, well, like I imagine like the, the tire screeching sound, you know, in the first time, the first people, some of the first people that read this, they go, whoa, he was laying in a manger? That means he was born in some sort of a stable, some sort of animal shelter? The, the idea is that just when, when that God of Revelation 1 could not get lower, just when, when the God who became man could not humble himself anymore, he does. Not only did he become human, which is crazy, and not only did he become human and, and was chose to be born to a, a peasant family in an obscure region, but like, like again, he just continues to move lower. The, the God continues to show his humility even more. And now he's born in a stable, laying in, a, in an animal food trough in a manger? That, that, that shows the distance, the love for us that that God has, the, how low and how far he was willing to go to identify with us. And we should continue to ask the question, can he get even lower than that? Like, can he get even more humble? And the answer is yes, he does, because he moves from the manger to the cross, he goes even lower. He shows his humility even more by bearing the weight, the wrath of God for our sins. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, I think is, is, is the best, most concise summary of this, of this section. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake and for mine, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see the exchange that's, that's taking place here? And so, remember how low, how humble our Lord went. Verses 8 through 10. Um, and it, it, this, is, this is now the scene moves over to the shepherds, um, and it shows that they're, that they're in their 
in their fields and they get this, this they, they see these angels. Um, and in verse 10, it says, it says, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Church, that message for them is the same for us today. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Why should we, and Jared talked about it so great last week. He talked about all the crisis that we face. And if you were to just summarize every crisis, and he said, and it was so good last week where he said, if the second one crisis finally gets dealt with in our life, whether it's like just in our immediate little world or the world, the second one crisis gets dealt with, another one pops up, right? And the news agency has, I'm sure has nothing to do with that. I'm sure they're just like have a whole host of, all right, they, that one's dealt with. Here comes another one. And we could just get so bogged down with fear. And he said that, that's, that if you were to just summarize all these crises that we face into one word, it's fear. And it's true. But we get a message here fear not. Why? Because of the gospel. What, they, what, the, what the angel says to the shepherds is, I bring good news. I bring the gospel. The gospel is, is like the Greek word good news. It is, it is just that. And, and, the, and the angel says, I bring the gospel to you that God has become man, that, that, the, that the Messiah, the rescuer, the one prophesied about for, you know, since the beginning is here. And that is a reason why we don't have to fear. Because in all the crisis of our world, God's answer is Jesus. And that is still the answer today. So as you get, again, as you, as you listen to the news, as you get, as you sit around the table discussing things and the, the conversations inevitably talk about, you know, and turn negative and we start to, that fear starts to come out. Pause, recognize that God sent his son and we should not fear for that reason, that God wins, that God reigns and rules. And the beautiful thing, what I love about this passage in, at, the, at, the end of, um, at the end of verse 10, it says, I bring you good news for great joy that will be for all people. This is for all people of all nations for all time. There is no other news in history that is good news for all people and all times. Things that were good news for people hundreds of years ago are things we just glance over in the history books and we go, oh, interesting fact, moving on. Things that are good news for us, things that we like celebrate and rejoice over, people on the other side of the world, it's not even a blip on their radar. They don't even care about those things. But the, what the amazing thing about this news is the, is the good news that was the good news for shepherds in a field 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe is just as good for you and me today. It is, it is news that we can rejoice over and it is news that we need to make known to people. It is news that we, we, like, we need to do what the, what the angels and the shepherds did. We need to proclaim that good news as well, because that good news isn't just good news for us. It is good news for all people, and we need to make it known. Now, finally, we get to verse 11, and this is where we'll camp for most of the, uh, most of the rest of the, the, the morning. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This verse 
answers the question, what child is this? Who, who is this child? And I love in birth announcements or in, in births when, when babies are born, everybody wants to know everything about the baby, right? It's like, oh, well, tell, tell us, like, how much, did they, how much did he or she weigh? And how long was he? And how long did it take to be born? And like, like, what's his name? What's his middle name? And oh, like, you know, how much is he sleeping? Is he eating? Is he pooping? All these things, you know, we have all these questions that are so, like, you wouldn't ask anybody else these questions, but, but we want, like, we're just fascinated. We, we want to be introduced to this new person. Tell us everything about this, this new person. Who is he or she? And we get introduced in this text to who this child is. There is, this is probably one of the, in, in, throughout, the throughout the Bible, certainly throughout the Gospels, this is one of the most um, theologically dense um, passages. In other words, there is the, the titles of Jesus that are given here um, are there, there's more packed into one verse than anywhere else in the Gospels. The um, the names again, the names and the titles. Um, it's it's a very rich and dense verse. So first, I'm just going to go walk through one by one. Uh, first of all, um, first of all, what child is this? He's the Savior. We we see first and foremost that he's the Savior. This is, and again, if you're us reading this passage, we miss a lot of these things. But if you're a, a first century reader, probably certainly Luke's first audience, you would have picked up on a lot of the things that Luke is actually trying to say here. Um, this is actually meant to be, in many ways, a direct contrast to, to, the, to the emperors, to the Caesars, specifically Caesar Augusta here, uh, Caesar Augustus that's, that's mentioned here. Um, at, at the time of Luke's writings and before, there were a lot of claims about who the Caesar, who the emperor, who Caesar Augustus especially was. Um, there were claims that he was the savior, the savior of the world. He, there were claims that he was the king. When, when he was brought into, like when, his, when he start, began his rule as emperor, it was described when it was told to people, it was brought about that this was going to be good news. Uh, he was proclaimed as the one who would bring about, who brought about peace. When, he, when Caesar Augustus like, took over as emperor, um, he, Rome enjoyed about a 20 to 30, probably more, um, you know, season of, of without war. And it was brought about as the peace of Rome. And so he was, you know, the emperor was the one who brought peace to people. And, all, and also uh, that, that the Caesar was told, you know, it was, it was claimed that he was a man who ultimately became a god, one of the gods, and he was worshiped as a god. And you see what Luke is doing here is he was saying, no, 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 Jesus is the one who brings peace. Jesus is the god who became man. Jesus is the one who rules. Jesus is actually the Savior. And what, G and what Luke is trying to tell us is that Jesus saves. Caesar does not save. And that's true. If you look at Ephesians 2, what, is, what does Ephesians 2 1 say? It says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when, when we had no hope in and of ourselves, God sent his son, that Jesus came to save us. And we often view the Christmas story as neutral observers, right? Again, we kind of get this, this picture in our mind where we see, you know, we see the manger and we see, um, you know, Mary and Joseph and, and we, see, uh, we, see, we see Jesus and, and all these things. And we're just kind of on, on the outside looking in. But the fact of the matter is that we need to see ourselves in the story. You see, this message isn't do more, Work harder. Be a better person. This message is to point to the fact that, that we 
are utterly helpless. See, Jesus came as a, as a child to, to point to and to illustrate and to identify with us, to show, to point to our helplessness. So my friends, if, if you're sitting here this morning and you are feeling very confident in who you are, if you're thinking, man, you know, God is so lucky to have me on my team, or I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, I'm, I'm so much, you know, I, I have it more together than these other people, look to the manger, because Jesus is pointing, like God is pointing to us in this. He's, he's, he's saying like, I became who you are. The, the, the helplessness, the, the state of utter dependence that, that a newborn child has in the lowest possible place, that's you and that's me. But if you're sitting here on, on the opposite end of the spectrum and thinking like, I am beyond saving. I have done so much that God can't save me. I am beyond redemption friend, look at the manger and show who God became to identify with you, to save you. Go back to 2 Corinthians 8. By his poverty, he is making you rich. Again, this message isn't do more, work harder, be better. This message is fall at the grace and the mercy and the love of God. The next title we see is, is Christ. The Messiah, the one promised starting in Genesis 3, remember that, that snake crusher that Jared talked about last week in Genesis 3, the, the one that would, that would crush the head of the snake at, at the cost of himself, the one prophesied about throughout the Old Testament is the one we see here. I love in verse 6, look at verse 6 where it says, uh, it says, and while they were there, the time came, don't brush over that passage, the time came. What the entire Bible points to culminates right here. The time has finally come. God has kept his promise, who he has talked about and prophesied and told the people over and over and over, this one will come. One will come who will rescue us. He will be our rescuer. It came. He is here. He is Christ he is king of all, and his kingdom and his rule and his reign is advancing. It continues to grow and change hearts. The Messiah, the Christ, is here. And thirdly, the Lord. This word is translated uh, in, in many different ways in, in the original. It can be used as, as master. It can be used as owner. Um, other passages Paul talks about, sometimes when he's talking about human relationships, um, he talks about slaves and masters. He'll say, like, slaves, be obedient to your masters. Um, masters, don't treat your slaves harshly. It's the same, it's the same word that he's using here. Um, again, it can, be, it can be master, it can be owner, it can be lord. Paul, in fact, in many of his letters, almost all of his letters, in some way or another, um, titles himself um, Paul a servant or a slave of Christ. I think what this reminds us, when, we, when, we, when he is given the title Lord, something that this reminds us is the fact that Jesus did not come to be our genie. Jesus, we are not the master, and he gives us wishes. Jesus did not come to be our Santa Claus. He didn't come to just give us good gifts when we're doing well and things like that. But our view is, is often this way. Jesus came to be our Lord. He came to be our master. He came not, not only to, to save us and to redeem us, he came to own us. But sadly, I think sadly in our culture, 
we have, and in, in many ways, sadly, rightfully so, we have a t- very tainted view of the word of, of servant and slave and owner and master, and it's, it's been tainted by our history, and, and even by things that continue today, where, where we view authority negatively, because we often view authority in, in one way or another, owners and masters, we view them as, as people who oppress others for their own benefit, others who, who intentionally hurt to serve themselves. But we need, to, we need to change that view when we think of Jesus as our owner, Jesus as our master, Jesus as our Lord, because he is, he is a good owner. He's a good Lord. Our master cares for us. We are safest at, under his ownership. We are, we are best when he rules and reigns and sits on the throne of our lives. We will find ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate contentment when he sits in the rightful place as master of our lives. When we bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, that is when we, that, that, is, the best for, that is the very best thing for us. And finally, verse 14. It says, glory, it's the, it's, the, it's the angels, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Last point is that he brings peace to those who follow him. He brings peace to those who follow him. We have to remember that his pleasure, like like his smile, his pleasure, a right relationship with him is not earned by you or me. It is not earned by our works. It was won by Christ on the cross. What he says here, he says, glory in God the highest on earth, peace among those. He doesn't say peace for everyone. He doesn't say automatic peace, you know, the, the Oprah. Everybody, everybody gets peace. It's, it's, it's for everyone. That's not, that, that is not what is said here. It says on peace among those with whom he is pleased. How, how, is, the, how is the pleasure of God earned? Not by you, not by me, not by our works by Christ. Our sin, friends, has separated us from God. We are objects, we are objects of his displeasure. That's, that's a very kind word for wrath. We are objects of his displeasure. And by turning from your sin, if you, if you don't know Christ, today receive the greatest Christmas gift that you can ever receive and give your life to Christ. Accept his gift of grace by turning from your sin, from yourself, confessing your sin. You can be forgiven. He came to save you. He came to restore you. He came to bring you back to, to himself. And I, friends, listen, I, I know how the game is played. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in church. I, I, I knew this stuff from the time I was really little. And I know how to put on a good face. If you're born into a Christian family, if you sing the songs, if you maybe one time like raised your hand, filled out a card, but it's not never changed your life, you still do not have that peace that he desires for. You don't have that peace that he came to give you. Give your life to King Jesus. He is here. He reigns and he rules and he wants to bring the lost to himself. I think the, the final message of this is that sin and death no longer reign. Sin and death no longer reign. Death no longer has the, right, the last word. Maybe, 
Maybe this is your first, for some of you, actually I know it is, for some of you, maybe this is your first Christmas without a loved one. Um, and that's, that's hard. I can, I can only imagine how hard that is. But take heart. If they have given their life to Christ, you will, you will stand shoulder to shoulder with him for all of eternity and sing God's praises. What I, I love here is like this, this glory to God in the eyes. This is like this little bitty window that we get into what eternity is like. We get this little glimpse of what we will spend all of eternity doing, singing and praising the glory of God. And it will never get old. We will never plumb the depths of God's glory. We will never get tired of singing his praises. And we get a glimpse of it here. And friends, if, if, again, if this is your, your, your first Christmas without those loved ones, if they have given their life to Christ, you can see them again if you too give your life to Christ. So church, let us, like the shepherds, like the angels, sing and proclaim the glory and majesty of God, the King of all who became a man to save us. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we... We fall at our face. We bow humbly before you. Lord, in light of, of all that you have done, of who you became for our sake, Lord, you became poor that we might become rich in you. What a gift that we could never earn. Lord, we humbly and gratefully say thank you once again and give you the glory. And we pray, Lord, that we would live our lives to the praise of your glory. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in your name. Amen. God bless you, church.